0: Hello, welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime.
1: I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. (laughs)
0: Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. (laughs) This week, we go to New York City. The Big Apple, baby. Yes, in the 1970s. Okay. Okay. In 1973, a 43-year-old horse trainer moved an 18-year-old top model into his luxury penthouse apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Five years later, Mm -hmm. their next-door neighbor would be found horribly murdered in a burning wooden crate in the Bronx. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. Join us this week for the meteoric rise and fall of a high school dropout come millionaire, the absurdly specific and confusing world of thoroughbred horse racing, a ski lodge for swingers, and so much more super weird 70s stuff.
1: (laughs) I love this. I feel like you're back. I think ba- this for you. Yeah. is like
0: hardcore especially.
1: I feel like you're back in the swing of it, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you did just go like, "Oh my god, this is going to be another two-parter." <laughs> <laughs> right? So this is part 1.
0: It is. Listen, man, I can't be doing two two-hour episodes every week and I don't know how to edit myself. So we're <laughs> yeah. doing two hours. It's like if you hate it, yeah. You know, I don't know, gently, like, <laughs> send me an Instagram thing and be like, I really like, do positive stuff. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I really like when they're in one hour and in one part, uh-huh, uh-huh. right? Or if you don't care, then good. But, uh-huh. you know, don't be mad.
1: <laughs> also, if you love multiple part episodes, let us know. Oh, yeah. You know, we're shooting from the hip here. Oh. You know, what I mean? Isn't that,
0: that seems like uh, apparent. Okay.
1: Um, you oh, that, go now. That seems like. <laughs> apparent as in that seems obvious yeah Yeah, very good okay all right we got a couple patreon bros to shout out brad and sean thank you so much for signing up we are dropping part two of this story on our patreon today so sign up for immediate access to that episode plus you unlock all of our exclusive content you get all future bonus episodes and you support this little podcast and the link is in the show notes and before you go started uh, get started on the next thing i want to wish a very happy birthday to my wife Aww, Muriel for, for you we're recording this before your birthday
0: it'll uh, air, it'll, after, it'll air birthday.
1: after your birthday so just <laughs> somewhere in there I just want the people to know that I'm wishing you a happy birthday because mm-hmm. I love you and we're about to have some fun
0: Nick just went out and braved LA temperatures it's like 95 degrees mm-hmm. and got me all my special treats and I just wanted to say that was really really romantic yeah, it was well, very very sweet. and it was brave it was romantic and, it was, and brave, and brave. Okay. <laughs> okay good all right perfect I love it <laughs> all right this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc lots of sex in this one it sounds so, like with young people too <laughs> it's lot okay so if any listeners are like nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things please just listen to another podcast
1: plus we'll probably do a little cursing and joking so if you're sensitive to that kind of thing turn us off
0: all right nikki are you ready to hear this story no okay let's get started
1: Well, I got my beard trimmed and I feel now I look like Martin Scorsese in his like dweebiest years. You know what I mean? And because of him and his dweebiness in those uh, years, I am obsessed with stories from new york in the 70s yeah you know what streets, i mean all yeah. that kind of fun stuff also so,
0: your parents were there kind of mm-hmm, kicking yep, it in the 70s yep i was, was born really in 84 yeah. you know what i
1: mean and uh we were lower east side type people uh, the upper east side is very glamorous and exciting and we have friends that live in the upper east side now um i don't know where this story is going to start because you'll be like and then there was this little planet called pluto where the <laughs> <laughs> where the contextual history Don't is really make important fun of me
0: I'm telling to you to what audience, happens next stop. It's okay my birthday <laughs>
1: you're right happy birthday I'll only make fun of anything except for you going forward no. okay all right baby what you Are you ready Yes. okay
0: so we're gonna start this story on the afternoon of Sunday August 6th in 1978 in a dumping ground on the outskirts of the Bronx in New York City okay so while I was putting this story together there's this little nagging thought of like there were a couple weird things that i was reading uh-huh. that made me think like what was the bronx like in the 70s
1: yeah right and
0: my dad's from there right yeah. so like i think about it and i'm like i don't I don't really know and i looked it up crazy town <laughs> yeah. so i feel like i need to tell you about it so you can kind uh-huh. of know this is your little pluto joke thing right? yeah right <laughs> but i think that it's important for you to know what was going on when this was happening
1: Obviously it is it's okay. the cornerstone of your st- of your uh, storytelling style <laughs> This is
0: really starting far off okay. Point. okay okay great So uh, in the 1970s the Bronx mm-hmm. was basically burning down mm-hmm. Like almost for that entire decade and then into the 80s Right So this was due mostly to a combination of the greatest hits We had a high unemployment rate stagnant economy there was white flight in the South Bronx, Mm -hmm. there's plunging property values, all of which contributed to vacant buildings Really explosive gang activity, squatters, drugs, and then this rash of arson mm-hmm. in the South Bronx yeah. that leveled whole city blocks. So Have you heard of this? Yeah,
1: it had to do with insurance, right? All the landlords were trying to get some money out of this thing.
0: Well, it was all kinds of people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so the arson really did come from all kinds of directions. They uh-huh. were owners of tenements, right, whose properties were redlined. So that's essentially meaning... That banks won't give them loans. It's Mm -hmm. harder to get insured. You know, like there's all this kind of stuff. They're considered like a risk, too much of a risk. Uh So after they were redlined, the owners were, yes, burning down apartment buildings for insurance money, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Homeowners out there sometimes did the same thing. Also, HUD which is the Department of Housing and Urban Development, had a project going on where they were offering $1,000 cash or check to people who lost Section, section 8 housing due to fires. Mm-hmm. And people were trying to get out yeah. of the South Bronx. So in order to do that, one way you could do that is get $1,000. Burn get, your house burn down. your house down mm-hmm. and then get put on a waiting list for better housing kind of east right? right a lot of people are trying to go to this place called co-op city uh-huh. in the east bronx interesting um so a bunch of people were burning down section eight housing two people were saying like firefighters would get to buildings burning down yeah and everybody would be standing on the curb with their stuff packed like already <laughs> yeah. like it was just for sure whatever was going on yeah All in all, about 40% of the South Bronx was either burned or abandoned between 1970 and 1980. And for several of these years, the South Bronx was the murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, and arson capital of America.
1: Damn. They were just in all categories. Yeah. It was a pretty
0: wild, wild time, right?
1: Jesus. Yeah.
0: So. On this muggy Sunday afternoon in 1978 in August, two men driving a yellow Cadillac bypassed the burning South Bronx and opted instead to start a very suspicious fire in the East Bronx in full view of Co-op City, Mm -hmm. which is like a large, well-known housing development, and right next to a fire station. (laughs) So the men dragged a six-foot-long wooden crate out of the back of their yellow 1974 Cadillac, set the crate on fire, ran back to their car, and sped away.
1: Just on the street?
0: Yes. One of several witnesses to this strange broad daylight move wrote down the caddy's license plate number. Uh Uh-huh. A fireman at the scene said at the time, quote, the fire was what we call a nothing fire there was a trunk on a heap of garbage surrounded by a mound of garbage.
1: (laughs) They're like, that's just nothing to us at this
0: point. (laughs) It's just like, right, I mean, that's... that's Right, they're like, all of
1: these buildings, like, we, you know, we have to make sure none of the houses burned down. A car, nothing fire. What sounds like a coffin, a nothing fire. Right,
0: so then he goes on to add, the guy's legs were coming out of the bottom of this burnt box.
1: Oh, so it was a body. Right, and
0: (laughs) one of the guys, meaning one of the policemen, said, ah, gee, it looks like a mafia hit. Mm-hmm. But someone else said, no, what's the point of burning it? That's dumb. If They had taken, just taken the body down to Baychester two blocks away. No one would have found it for weeks.
1: So <laughs> this is just the neighborhood scuttlebutt <laughs> breaking down the scene this of the, the scene crime. Like the two firefighters uh-huh. talking to each other. Uh-huh.
0: So I'm assuming Baychester is like, right. Like it's all basically the East Bronx, mm-hmm. the neighborhood of Baychester, uh, It has a lot of green space and it backs right up to the Long Island Sound so I'm guessing it's just a really good body dumping spot <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it they know about but de- don't check for yeah.
1: me. <laughs> they're like yeah just dump your bodies there trust us we do not look
0: I mean basically what you're talking about is like part of the Bronx is on fire and Yeah. you could have just dumped the crate literally into a fire Yeah. and instead they went to probably the safest place in the Bronx at the time Yeah. and then burned a body in the middle of the day right. in front of a fire station so
1: these people either really know what they're doing or have no idea what they're like doing like maybe
0: it's a power move who right knows, exactly right? right so police radioed a description of the car and the license plate number and police quickly located the yellow Cadillac in a traffic jam on the Triborough Bridge what's now called the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge I'm sure it's not
1: the Triborough Bridge
0: is that what it's called <laughs> oh my god
1: <laughs> it's okay I'm not like some New Yorker I mean I was born there the but
0: Triborough <laughs> Bridge of course uh, it's funny I have so many things that are just pronounced differently in your brain. No, like yeah, it's called in reading. other other shut up. <laughs> like In other countries. Uh-huh. I'll just be trying to wheel and deal. This right? is not other
1: countries, Muriel. This is I'm me-
0: just saying I just do my best, okay? Uh, yeah. Try borough bridge, <laughs> right? Okay. So like it's now called the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge. People call it both. But it's mm-hmm. just about 20 minutes away from where the fire was started. Okay. So by coincidence, there was a patrol car sitting in traffic directly behind the
1: Cadillac. <laughs> so their great getaway was just to go get stuck in traffic in front of a cop.
0: And then they ran the license plate number. They were like, OK, be on the lookout for two males in a yellow Cadillac. <laughs> yeah. And the guy's like, wait a minute. I got it. <laughs> so the police were really easily able to pull over the car Uh uh-huh in the front passenger's seat was a 23 year old italian immigrant named salvatore pranito on the driver's side was a thin small mustachioed man 48 year old horse training legend Mm -hmm. howard buddy johnson okay what's his ethnicity what I said his name wrong. Okay.
1: Well, what's his ethnicity? He was a
0: Jewish gentleman named Howard Buddy Jacobson. Okay. I don't know why Buddy Johnson seems like... I think it's from a TV show that I watched, but I keep to say his name wrong
1: okay it's all right
0: anyways i think friday night lights all right whatever yeah so buddy was born in the brooklyn neighborhood of flatbush in 1930 his dad joseph was like a hat company executive okay (laughs) and his mom florence had three brothers who were considered the biggest names in horse racing at the time Mm. sydney eugene and hirsch jacobs Mm -hmm. so particularly hirsch who was inducted into the national museum of racing's hall of fame in 1958 and uh his daughter patrice also owned a thoroughbred mm-hmm. called affirmed that won the triple crown in 1978. okay coincidentally yeah. the same year her cousin buddy was burning a body in the Bronx. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs>
1: yeah all right so, so
0: buddy started working for his uncle eugene at the age of 11. so he would walk horses Mm -hmm. it's called being a hot walker so basically you walk them to warm them up and Mm -hmm. then cool them down before and after races and he loved it he was like i want to be a trainer Mm -hmm. this is what i want to do i want to work with horses he ended up dropping out of high school early to become a trainer and then he moved to work for eugene in florida in 1949 yeah so by the time buddy was 22 he had his trainer's license and he was working for eugene as a foreman 10 years later, Buddy was the highest regarded horse trainer in North America. Whoa. And was known as the Wonder Boy.
1: Man, this is really, you know, a royalty in that sport. Yeah. Yeah. It
0: really is. And, you know, I'm going to, I'll get into this. I don't uh, know much about the world of fancy horses. So we're yeah. going to keep this very simple.
1: It's okay. Who does? Almost no one. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: But they write these articles like we all know.
1: <laughs> like I was reading all of these yeah.
0: archived articles and I was just like, I don't know. What's a hot walker? What's yeah. this guy? Does yeah. that matter? They're like because the language is such a different thing. It's you totally. know the names of the horses and all this stupid crazy stuff. Yeah,
1: <laughs> all this stupid crazy stuff. I'm just
0: saying. Like I was like googling every yeah. other word. Yeah, and it, it there's a very rich history and this thing is very complex and then i was like i'm gonna do this in a simple way because i don't even think i can explain okay okay so by 1963 i'm using um my words not the words that they use to describe people because Mm -hmm. fancy horse people have their whole like other coded language Uh uh right okay but by 1963 (laughs) buddy had trained more race winning horses than any other trainer in the nation okay By 1965, he had worked with 198 winners and he was regarded as the best trainer in the U.S. for the third year in in a row. Yeah. And for five straight years in the 1960s, he also was the number one trainer in New York State. Wow. So he had a huge, massive reputation. Sure. And there are millions of dollars involved. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he married a woman named Joan. They had two kids, David and Douglas. Um, He, at his peak, was handling up to 50 horses at a time while also running three cattle ranches, a horse transportation company, and a horse farm on Long Island in upstate New York. Yeah. So he was a millionaire by the end of the decade.
1: Yeah. Wow. He's just on fire.
0: Yes. Yeah. So while he was a wunderkind, he was also kind of a controversial figure before all the murdering. (laughs) So fancy... Like I said, I wrote this a lot in the script. Okay. <laughs> Fancy horses and racing is its own world. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to keep this
1: simple. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we we know. We know. We're with you, Miriam.
0: <laughs> I wrote this like three times. Okay. Don't okay. say it anymore. Okay. Okay. So from what I read, Buddy was generously known as like an anti-establishment renegade and then like mm-hmm. less generously known as kind of a butthole, right? <laughs> so... There's like a lot of things about racing. It's like the, ki- the sport of kings, you know, and uh, yeah. it has a storied history and all these kind of things. So being anti-establishment in that world is pretty radical, especially when you come from this like legacy horse training. Yeah, family,
1: right? right. Totally. They're like, we have a legacy to withhold, traditions to, you know, keep intact and a way of doing it. Do the fancy horse people have a name for a butthole?
0: No, okay. I, that's a good question. But okay. I don't I, okay. I mean, probably. <laughs>
1: okay. If there's any fancy horse people out there, let us know what you call people that you think are jerks.
0: <laughs> All right. So, one of the things that he did often in the press is re- like refer to racing as a business rather than a, a sport, mm. which apparently fancy horse guys hated. They do not <laughs> like that. Yeah. Okay. And then he told the press also that he really didn't learn anything from his uncles, which is like, okay, come on.
1: Yeah. Oh, the people who started teaching you when you were 11, 11 years old. Like yeah. I'm
0: sure all the rest of the guys you were hanging out with are all horse trainers too. Like, yeah. I mean, come on. Jesus yeah. Christ. So he didn't have any reverence for horses either. Mm-hmm. He kind of, thought of them and talked about them as machines he wasn't Mm -hmm. known to be like affectionate or have nicknames or think they have personalities or Mm -hmm. anything so he he really didn't think of them as animals that's
1: pretty psychopathic tendencies it is because like i mean
0: in horses in particular they're i mean all animals are you know interesting
1: living satient beings
0: right and then horses you know are very intelligent like herd animals that have personality. like you- well and
1: my dumbass you know uh whatever opinion on them or perspective on them without knowing much is that every horse's personality is also really different yeah so a horse that acts like this you have to train like this and you have to run them in the morning and they need to this and you know or right, whatever you have to right. talk to them this way to get them to do the thing you want them to do so
0: he was not about that really. uh-huh. he was more about like trading and selling horses mm-hmm. and there's a couple other things that he did like, he didn't really do anything below board during his prime, right? Like, he would always enter his horses under the right age. He wouldn't, like, you know, enter his horses in races under the wrong weight. or something He's not like a that. cheater. Right. Uh-huh. But there were a lot of rumors about his, it. like, Attitude, You know, he would openly talk about horses were the dumbest things alive. Mm. He would say things like, I don't even like horses. He once said, if they put a, if they put on a kangaroo race, yeah. I'd claim some kangaroos. Like, he's like, I don't care. I
1: mean, it would be pretty funny if, like, the best golfer in the world was like, you know, I hate golf balls. I mean, these I've, golf clubs are stupid. I
0: felt like that about acting all the time. I'd just be like, they'd be like, how are you doing? i was like, I have to do these stupid commercials. And people would be like, what?
1: Your <laughs> so you're saying you're the... Um, Buddy Jacobson of acting? Yes. Okay.
0: All right. So uh, he was also kind of known to some people, like less for his magic horse touch, right? Mm -hmm. And being like this wonder boy and more for just staying ahead of trends. Like he was one of the first people to use x-rays to check a horse's legs before buying or training. Or he was like one of the first people to start injecting cortisone uh into horses joints before a race mm. so things that were legal yeah but just kind of like less about i don't know the problem i mean i think it's not i'm saying this dumb thing like off the top of my head but it's yeah. basically like less about the personality of the horse and whether or not you think it's a winner mm-hmm. and like more about like bring that over there x-ray its legs mm-hmm. i don't like that ankle mm-hmm. i'm not gonna buy it mm-hmm. you know so it's like way more kind of wheeling and dealing and money work.
1: Yeah, he's shrewd.
0: Right. But regardless of all of that, he was really successful until he wasn't. Mm. So Buddy made a series of fancy horse missteps. (laughs) Two things happened around 1969. Mm -hmm. Buddy made a couple of mistakes. And Buddy, who was at the time the president of the New York division of the HBPA, that's the Horseman's Benevolent and Protective Association... Orchestrated a big strike. Uh-huh. Before the labor strike, he was dealing with the staggering amount of horses by anyone's standards. Mm-hmm. And depending on who you talk to, he either made a few honest bookkeeping errors or he was playing fast and loose and sort of fudging the rules, right? So there were some things that weren't really egregious, but mm-hmm. he d- definitely was like really wheeling and dealing hard. And some of that stuff got away from him. Are you going to be
1: able to give some examples? Yes, we'll
0: talk about this. Okay. But I was just going to say, the numbers on this are a little fuzzy. So I pieced this kind of together from a bunch of different archived articles. And they all kind of had slightly different timelines and money amounts. They were just Mm -hmm. written like 50 years ago. Sure. But this is the gist of what happened. Okay. In the spring of 1969, Buddy orchestrated a nine-day labor strike at the aqueduct racetrack in Queens. So the aqueduct was the only thoroughbred track in New York. Mm -hmm. And it's a super famous spot where that horse Secretariat, publicly mm-hmm. retired, right? Okay. You know that's the only horse I know. He's yeah, the movie, right? That
1: one, and I don't know Howdy Duty or something. I forget any horse's name. I, can't, I literally can't go. biscuit. there we oh, go. Yeah, Seabiscuit. Okay. So, like,
0: we know Secretariat and Seabiscuit. Yeah, and Howdy Duty. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, Buddy organized this sort of strike for better retirements for jockeys and other aqueduct workers. So mm-hmm. That's who he was representing, and again. This is another part of buddy where there's like two sides to interpret what this was about sure so either buddy was trying to do some good and bust up the power dynamics of the establishment giving the little guys a little more leverage and helping them retire with grace right mm-hmm. or it was a double middle finger to the horse racing establishment and an attempted power grab to control racing in new york city mm-hmm. and possibly some people have suggested Um, gaining control over this fat pension fund he was trying to establish. Mm -hmm. So regardless, the aqueduct shut down for nine days, which was a pain in the ass for the fancy horse guys. And a few weeks later... Buddy was investigated by the New York Racing Association on, like, unrelated charges. Okay. Right? So then that's Like, like are
1: you going to do that to us? Oh, actually, we have a little investigation. We've been meaning to get to this for years.
0: Right, right. Uh And and from what I've read, like, basically, people were behind the strike at first. They just were like, show a little strength. But they were thinking it would be three days. And then Buddy kind of got in control of everything and pushed it to nine days. Mm -hmm. And by the end, everyone was just mad and tired like <laughs> yeah. they lost all of their support essentially uh, even within yeah. the ranks yeah so you know like that's kind of how they look at it as it was just kind of too long mm-hmm. you know it was too long to make their point so the new york racing association investigated buddy on seven charges eventually upholding five and the charges were stuff like misrepresenting the value of a horse at a sale and then pocketing the difference mm-hmm. right and they're kind of it sounds like that actually did happen and you know like that's not a super uncommon thing Mm -hmm. so it's not like the most egregious thing but he was being a little shady okay and he also did things like he sold the thing that kind of was the nail in the coffin is that he sold a horse in maryland before a 60-day waiting period was up these findings resulted in at least one horse owner successfully suing him And, much more devastatingly, a very ill-timed suspension. So, Buddy was only suspended for 45 days in the state of New York. But, the suspension was either intentionally or unintentionally timed to line up with when the association divvied up all the stall space in New York City for the year. Oh. So, Buddy was effectively barred from getting stall space at any of the New York City racetracks, hmm. which meant that he couldn't race. Mm-hmm. So the suspension turned out like the 45 day suspension right. turned yeah, into yeah, like yeah. a career like ending, you know, dead period. Yeah,
1: that's crazy. It's like getting suspended from school the week you're supposed to sign up for classes or something. Something like that. It's like, like you that. come back and like all the classes are full. I don't know. Is that, has that right. ever happened and in the history like- of school? I don't know. But <laughs> it feels like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but that is set out. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So. Essentially, this ended his career. You know, he sued the association for his losses totaling over $6 million. That's about $34.5 million in today's money. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a lot of money. Yeah. And he said, in part, that the suspension was a conspiracy to force him out of racing in retaliation for the aqueduct strike. So he was really vocal about that. It went all the way up to the New York Supreme Court. And then he lost the suit in 1974. Mm. They upheld, you know, the association's suspension. Right. So by 1974, when this ruling came out, uh, Buddy was divorced. His reputation was all jacked up. His famous uncle, Hirsch Jacobs, died. Buddy did not go to the funeral. Mm. But Buddy was long gone from the racing scene by then he had decided to make a hard pivot way back in 1970 after the stall ban, like Mm -hmm. that first year. And in December of 1970, he bought a ski lodge in Vermont and became a sex God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Sounds get some snow bunnies, uh, sliding down those mountains at you.
0: So in December, 1970, buddy just bounced Uh up to vermont he bought the norway ski lodge and he rebranded it as a place for singles and swingers with a party there every night
1: oh my god it's like white christmas but the triple x version it's
0: exactly like that (laughs) right so he would like literally have women driven up from Manhattan Mm -hmm. to party at the ski lodge. Yeah. And he was just a menace by all accounts. Uh Like Not not a menace in a violent way, but just, like, the most... uh, It's just so funny. Well, is
1: he paying these women to come...
0: No, but he's, like, paying for all their stuff. It's like a, like he's a Playboy millionaire, and yeah. he's like, I want beautiful women, and they're like, I'm just going to the Chateau. Right? I
1: mean, I haven't had a lot of experience with people like that, but the few experiences I had with people like that, it's not like that person is also, like, the most chill bro. Yeah, <laughs> Generally, right. I don't know if I would consider all of them to be a menace, but the few that I've hung out with that are like that in those types of situations are, uh, you know, a little iffy.
0: Yeah, I compiled, like, a lot of things that friends said about it uh-huh. I was like, later, but... Basically, he was just really into doing things some way. And I think Uh that also echoes back to the strike, you know, where it's like three days would have been fine. And he's like, I'm going to do nine. So what?
1: He's like railing against the Vermont Sexy Ski Association. Like he's just,
0: he was, I'm going to run the best ski lodge. Uh I'm going to do it differently than anyone else. I'm going to start the swingers club. Uh And... You know, he would refuse to wear socks when he went skiing. He wouldn't listen to anybody. <laughs> One guy was talking mm-hmm. about how, like, he literally would be looking at something green and he would argue with you that it's red. You know, he's that guy, right? Like uh, at a party where you're just like, "Oh my god, I don't want to do this." Right? Yeah, that guy. Okay, <laughs> okay. So it's like when I had a, a fight with my brother about what's the difference between like a van and like a bus or some sort of volume <laughs> thing. <laughs> It's like screaming at each other <laughs> okay <sighs> okay so <laughs> buddy also had a bachelor apartment back in new york in queens right mm-hmm. and it's funny because in la that means that like an apartment for one person with no oven. Yeah,
1: it's the it's definitely not a sexy hookup spot.
0: <laughs> no, but this is the sexy hookup spot okay. version of that, okay? Uh-huh. So the bachelor apartment in Ken Gardens was reportedly always full of stewardesses, mm-hmm. and he'd leave his Cadillac outside for girls to use whenever they wanted, and he'd cook these big pot roast beef dinners every night. <laughs> every night. <laughs> Like just living his very specific dream. Sure. Just like beef and stewardess. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Guys, he has a point.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's doing this thing. Yeah. Um, but he also had a thing about like never dating the same girl twice. He'd always be switching it up, mm-hmm. but he would never continue to see any girl if he found out she was dating other men. He said it was like, quote, digging up somebody's grave. <laughs>
1: He was also
0: known to lie about his age uh-huh. to the young women he was dating. Yeah. Uh, what he'd do is he'd go grab his sons, the, his two sons who were teenagers, uh-huh. and then he would pass them off as his brothers to trick girls into thinking he was like 15 or 20 years younger.
1: Did that work?
0: Kind of, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it did work. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I can't imagine that, but he looked pretty young for mm-hmm. his age. He was just... Thin and fit, I guess.
1: Yeah, maybe we should have some kids.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I can see I that can really paying off. For, for hey, party. yeah, this is...
1: Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. Uh, try to squeeze one in real quick.
0: I think ba- we need to adopt some teenagers. Yeah, oh. Like, oh, my brother's... In-
1: a <laughs> <laughs> Good call.
0: Okay, so eventually Buddy did leave the ski lodge life and he went back to Manhattan and then he started investing into real estate. Mm-hmm. So he bought two tenements on Manhattan's Upper East Side for seventy five thousand dollars in cash. Oh my God! Two tenements. Damn. That's about just for reference, yeah. right? Adjusted for inflation, that's still only four hundred and thirty two thousand in today's money. Yeah, like that's to buy insane. a house in L. A., you need like two million. You couldn't buy
1: like that, you know, where Shelley lives in the Upper East Side. Yeah. You couldn't buy a place like that. Like that's odd. Aw- an apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No way. I do have a quick question. Yeah, was go for he it. ran out of Vermont? Did the ski lodge fail? Nobody What's- said.
0: I uh. don't know. I think my assumption is the ski lodge failed. <laughs> yeah. I don't so know. Everyone's
1: if- doing it. No one's paying. He's just hosting everyone.
0: I kind of think. Do you remember when we did? Um, who's that uh, crazy millionaire guy who did McAfee software? Oh,
1: John McAfee. Yeah, John
0: McAfee. So <laughs> when we did that episode, yeah. he did the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so remember, yeah 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 he yeah. bought like a huge compound in yeah. colorado or something yeah. for like free spiritual life and yeah. like he just ran out of money because yeah, he didn't pay right. anything and he came out of it with this really bad taste in his mouth yeah but he like it's he created his own problem yeah totally <laughs> you know, like, the hangers on weren't paying for anything huh so i'm assuming it's something like that but he just left a ski lodge park.
1: sounds like it
0: yeah, yeah. so anyway seventy five thousand right, okay. dollars in cash he bought two tenements and tore them both down and built a fat seven-story apartment building with all these luxury amenities. Mm-hmm. Like, he had a rooftop pool.
1: Hell yeah. Right?
0: That's where he was kicking it.
1: Yeah, which I think is only utilizable for, I don't know, three months out of the year in New York. <laughs> in New York, right. Yeah.
0: During construction... Buddy also insisted on leading the way, right? Mm -hmm. Even though he had no construction experiences, he was like, I'm going to kind of be in charge.
1: You're really hands-on.
0: Right. So if he made a mistake and he made somebody do something and it really didn't work, they'd like have to tear out a floor and put it back in. And (laughs) he just like didn't care. He was like, whatever it takes, Uh I just want to do it myself. All right. So at the completion of that, he's ready to rent. And in walks 18 year old Melanie Kane. Oh no. So, Melanie, I think he was definitely messing around with like the 18 to 20 crowd. It looks like he uh-huh. just did that forever. Uh-huh. But uh, Melanie was born in Naperville, Illinois. Ooh, we've been there. Yeah. And she moved with her family to New Jersey in her junior year of high school. So, she was five foot eight. She had dark blonde hair, dimples, super pouty lips. With this like really wholesome milk fed Midwestern look, <laughs> but she was just like a really gorgeous girl. She's uh-huh. super pretty, uh-huh. and I, you know, I've seen photos of her and stuff. And when she turned eighteen. She signed with Ford Modeling in the summer of 1973. So straight out of high school. Yeah. And she started booking huge gigs right off the bat. She was booking, you know, 17 magazine and cosmopolitan covers. Mm -hmm. She booked a spread in Redbook. She was pretty much a top model in NYC, like right out of the gate.
1: Do they even give those covers to models as opposed to it's all celebrity based now? Now, I
0: think mostly, but I think back then it was like, More, I think there was a lot of like personality based modeling too. Like on her 17 cover, Mm -hmm. it was more about describing you know introducing Melanie Kane you know Midwestern girl from da 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 so like they'll talk about blurbs like they were more like celebrities that's
1: interesting right I get that I mean I get that models are celebrities I just feel like magazine covers are only movie and TV
0: actors these days yeah I think you're completely right about that I mean I don't follow it.
1: anyways that's just my little like history of the lady magazine It's just my two cents. Just what I've up. noticed. Okay.
0: Okay, so Eileen Ford ran the show. She was like Ford model. Okay. Eileen Ford. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But her husband, Jerry, who's always around, yeah. later remembered Melanie as, quote, a very pleasant kid, but naive. She had a bit of a weight problem. <laughs> Not true. Yeah. Uh, good mouth, good teeth. <laughs> <laughs>
1: He's like, hey, look, you can look like anything from the neck down and from the nose up. But if your mouth and your teeth are good, you're going to be a Ford star, baby. He's just
0: like such a, just such a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> also, I just think it's hilarious you described her like that. It sounds just like somebody describing a horse. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. He's like, we got to get the x-ray machine out here. You need some calcium in those joints?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so after booking her first contracts... You know she's really doing well mm-hmm. she moves in to a ground unit in buddy's upper east side luxury apartment mm-hmm. building with a bunch of models because that's definitely who buddy is like renting to okay okay <laughs> so melanie and buddy used to hang out at the same restaurant across the street from the apartment building and 18 year old melanie was at the top of her game buddy was there for it right mm-hmm. this was the girl for him mm-hmm. And Melanie thought her Charlie Chaplin looking landlord was in his late 20s with two nice younger brothers, <laughs> yeah. but he was actually 43 and he quickly scooped her up like a goblin, uh-huh. moving her out of the ground floor and into his top floor penthouse.
1: Mm. <laughs> he was ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> to the moon, baby. Hop in this elevator all the way to the top.
0: The two of them were together for five years.
1: Which is an eternity for our pal Buddy ever since his divorce. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, it is. It's kind of crazy. Now, the caveat is at Buddy's murder trial, Melanie described herself as Buddy's longtime mistress. Uh Decidedly not his girlfriend, Uh right? Buddy dated all kinds of girls over the course of their relationship. My impression is that at first... When he slept with other women melanie would break up with him, thinking like we're monogamous and you're cheating right Mm -hmm. so at the beginning they were known as this on again off again couple
1: boy she is naive man jerry was right
0: but as the (laughs) don't don't (laughs) shit on melanie
1: (laughs) no of course
0: but as the years went by (laughs) they fell into a different style Mm -hmm. of relationship right Mm -hmm. melanie's relationship was only with buddy buddy's relationship was wide open, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of, right. I think, why she described herself. No,
1: I'm just being facetious by calling her naive, by well, being like, you're 18. cheating on me, of course, of course. I mean, she's, baby. she's not, I mean, it's completely logical to be like, you're cheating on me, we have to break up now.
0: He's like 25 years older than her.
1: And he's pulling off the the mid-20s uh, I think thing. that
0: was definitely her, just like not knowing how old people are. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, when you ask yeah, yeah. like a seven-year-old how old you are, and they're like, you're so old you're 12 yeah you right know. yeah yeah i think that might have been part of it now i'm being a jerk right. okay moving forward
1: and just for the record melanie does not end up dead in this story right we'll find out oh no
0: i'm not gonna tell you anything.
1: i know i know i just like to rest assured just looking you for- know
0: what i'll give you this yeah melanie comes out okay okay
1: good it's different to hear this story. You know, I just know, know that I know. little part. Thank okay. you for that. Okay. It's your birthday, but I feel like you're giving me a gift.
0: I am, because you're very sweet, and I was didn't get you anything for your <laughs> birthday. <laughs> so about a year after Melanie signed with Ford, mm-hmm. she was fired after a false rumor was started about how somebody said she's planning to open a competing modeling agency. Damn. And after she lost her modeling contract with Ford, she and Buddy were like, okay, fine. And they opened a competing modeling.
1: (laughs) So that might be a little chicken and the egg type situation, too, (laughs) depending on how you look at the story. It's like, oh, were the rumors completely made up?
0: (laughs) The My Fair Lady agency was bankrolled by Buddy Uh and named after Melanie's favorite Broadway show. Mm -hmm. The one where an older man teaches a young, sassy, coal-covered street urchin how to be a proper lady. So Buddy uh, and Melanie wanted to build this boutique agency. Ford was really big. Sure. With tons of models. Mm-hmm. So Melanie wanted something really small, about 25 models, mm-hmm. so everyone could get a lot of individual attention. And Melanie you know, said in the press at some point she was looking for versatile girls. She said, quote, A model these days can't just be pretty. She has to be versatile mm-hmm. to look like a fluffy-haired junior one day and a more sophisticated type with straight hair the next. <laughs> oh man i really thought she. Like eighteen. <laughs> i really thought she was on
1: the verge of saying some next level transcendent shit like a model needs to be a businesswoman with savvy and know who's trying to get you and who's trying to not but you know we're gonna train these you know a, a model
0: needs no, no, <laughs> to no. be She's like, like do you need to be able to do their hair two different <laughs> ways okay
1: we need all kinds of women with (laughs) both types of hair
0: the competition for models Mm. in new york city believably right was super super heavy right yeah buddy came up with a workaround for that he would throw a dart on a map and pull girls from wherever it landed so what they do is they basically like Pick in like a smaller city, Mm -hmm. and then they'd put ads in the local papers. Oh, so they're like
1: scouting the minor leagues basically, right?
0: And then people in like Minneapolis Mm. wouldn't know that My Fair Lady wasn't any lesser of an agency than the other big time New York agencies like Ford and Wilhelmina. Yeah, so they'd hold, they'd go there and they would think, This is this is the big. Big time. Yeah, big it's leagues, named right? after
1: the play, and I'm just like <laughs> Julie Andrews, right. all dirty and <laughs> don't know how to speak. Here I am.
0: <laughs> and then they'd hold these cattle calls, and they'd uh-huh. fly girls back to New York City, yeah, back to Manhattan. Well, that's
1: either brilliant or just so, um, what's the word, where you hunt something down and are horrible? Exploitative.
0: Yeah, I mean- Basically, My Fair Lady ended up with a refutation for having pretty girls, Mm -hmm. but more oddball types. That's the language that they were using. So, Mm -hmm. like, pretty, but too short. Mm -hmm. Or if it's more than that, maybe like pretty, but weird eyes, or Mm -hmm. something like that. Okay. (laughs) The agency survived by booking girls for hand leg and lingerie modeling Mm -hmm. but the vast amount of money was brought in from melanie's booking so essentially Mm -hmm. she was just floating the agency and she made about a hundred thousand dollars a year which is about five hundred and seventy-five thousand today so she did very well for herself as a model
1: god can you imagine if we were that age living in new york making that kind of money Uh, just being like awesome at whatever it is we
0: yeah living with a goblin in a high rise (laughs) well not that part i'm 29 years old (laughs) (laughs) the guy's just like so ridiculous okay yeah uh so they weren't really booking these girls for anything big Uh uh-huh and the girls who could work elsewhere would eventually leave for bigger agencies they Mm -hmm. couldn't really retain them sure but he also had a lot of like control over these girls you know there's 25 girls and you know he would put them up at the agency in a back room and they could sleep there they couldn't afford an apartment mm-hmm. and he would let them have free range of the pool mm-hmm. on top of his apartment building but they were never allowed to bring any men there sure <laughs> so yeah. like you know he, he was definitely controlling the narrative
1: yeah he's trying to like create some harem for himself or something
0: right Meanwhile, Buddy went back to building his real estate empire. In 1977, the Park East Hospital in East Harlem went bankrupt and they left their employees like with bad checks. I looked at oh, well. I looked it up just to see what it was, like uh-huh. what the building was, and the only story is from 1977 about how they closed before paying people and they all showed up and they were like locked out of the building. And Damn had the checks were all bad, you know, Whoa, a hospital. Yeah. So they had transferred the patients, but all the nurses and doctors and everyone who worked there didn't get paid for their last two weeks or whatever. It's brutal. Right. So that's the building that buddy bought with plans to turn it into a $3 million housing co-op. So something similar to the city co-op that we were saying before, except we're yeah. in East Harlem.
1: Great. I mean, is that great? Are co-ops awesome?
0: I don't really know what copes are I, uh-huh. I can i i ran out of google energy okay fair enough. <laughs> some sort of housing thing okay <laughs> yeah, i think we got that part yeah right okay. yeah so his construction crew for that project was mostly made out of immigrants from southern italy and sicily mm-hmm. and buddy was known to that whole group as just you know his guys his construction guys he was just really, really popular. With uh-huh. The workers, some of the workers couldn't speak English and some of them didn't have the right immigration paperwork. So, you know, he was known for grabbing those guys and giving them work, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. In July of 1978, 34 year old John Tupper, who went by Jack moved from his fifth floor apartment in Buddy's upper east side building to the other penthouse on the seventh floor across the hallway from Buddy and Melanie's place. (sighs) Jack was a divorced father with a 10-year-old son. He was born into an Irish family in Queens. So this guy was like kind of ruggedly handsome, tall, well-built. He had a everybody always described him as husky but as an American nowadays I'm like he just looks like a guy yeah okay <laughs> but he you know, he has yeah. a kind of a big beefy face uh-huh. and then some thinning hair which adds to the beefiness but he's cute okay uh, he had a master's degree in business and he started managing bars in Queens and he had actually just recently moved to Manhattan and was already a player in the Upper East Side bar scene he just sold his bar called All Ireland mm-hmm. so he was you know, living in Manhattan. It's his first Manhattan address. Mm-hmm. Just graduated to the penthouse. And he's really like, we, like connecting with all of these different restaurant tours. Sounds Manhattan.
1: super successful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, he's kind of on the cusp of something. I think mm-hmm. he was looking to buy and figure out what he was doing. Yeah. He was also a relatively quiet dude. And he was just known for being a really nice guy. Uh-huh. You know, all around nice guy. Now, 23 year old Melanie and Jack, eventually met she invited him to go jogging with her so they ran into each other and she's like oh my god you're my neighbor and you want to go for a jog around the reservoir they started jogging around the reservoir on that first jog Mm -hmm. she told him she had a crush on him (laughs) okay they went to dinner Uh the next night Uh and then that weekend jack took melanie to costa rica for like a quick Like mini vacation Uh, with his sister and his brother.
1: Oh my God! Meet the family already. Yes,
0: and the brother-in-law was an FBI agent who was stationed in Costa Rica at the time. Uh huh. So when they get back from Costa Rica, Jack then rented them a really nice room at the Drake Hotel. So they still didn't go home.
1: Uh huh. So they started this. Oh, they meaning him and Melanie.
0: Right. Okay. So Buddy's like wheeling and dealing, doing his thing, Mm -hmm. building his co-op yeah hanging out with this model harem yeah but Mm -hmm. melanie's not coming home right and this is before cell phones and texting right (laughs) so this you know melanie and jack started their affair in this like half-assed secrecy right that <laughs> doesn't after, it sound like it <laughs> like they were let's have a dinner
1: yeah well this. but they're like let's run around the neighborhood together and then let's go to dinner tomorrow and then oops let's go to costa rica whatever
0: it is uh-huh. it, it started it wasn't overt at the beginning okay but after melanie stopped coming home <laughs> yeah. buddy knew something was up and he for sure knew something was up when Melanie moved in across the hall with Jack Tupper <laughs> the minute she returned home. She bounced, <laughs> but she just went across the hall to uh-huh. the other penthouse. Mm-hmm. So Jack and Melanie, by most accounts, were happy in their whirlwind relationship. Melanie was tired of Buddy. You know, he was controlling. She didn't like this open relationship thing. He was way older than she initially thought. And she, when she started to understand that, she just thought it was gross that he lied about being 25 years older than her. You well, know? yeah,
1: I mean that's a that's a lie that some people could do and pull off and whatever, and maybe you talk about it down the line. But lying that your sons are your brothers is also a whole other layer of, you know, conniving.
0: Right, and I think Melody <laughs> I read some whatever. I mean, essentially, she said, you know, I found out about that, and I was like, ew. <laughs> 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 and so the bloom is off the rose, right? <laughs> Uh, it sounds uh, like Jack Tupper was a bit of a white knight or like a knight in shining armor uh-huh. who saw Melanie as a lady in distress and himself as a protector.
1: Sorry, and what's the age difference there?
0: Mm, like 12 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> She's 23 and uh-huh. he's 34. It's like okay. 11 years. Okay. And. Regardless, it's it seems like whatever their deal was, it kind of matched up a little bit, right? Sure, yeah. So okay, she's looking for somebody to rescue her. Yeah, I think it sounds like Jack was a fixer, right? Yeah, that totally. He was definitely trying to. All his family would say he's so nice. He's always trying to help people. Yeah. So he's sounds- a
1: bar manager, you know. Right. Yeah. So it
0: sounds like that dovetailed really nicely. So as as accelerated as as it feels, mm-hmm. it worked for them. Great. So now. Melanie had traded her position as mistress for an eccentric 48-year-old millionaire who, by his own admission, had no friends, didn't own a suit, Uh and slept on a mattress on the floor of his penthouse. Really? For this younger, kind restaurateur with lots of friends and lots of suits.
1: And uh, a box spring to put that mattress on?
0: Right. I think he was just... uh, I think that... The more we learn about buddy the more like wild and out he was he's just like i'm anti-establishment so i won't have a bed frame (laughs) yeah sure (laughs) now with this comparison you can see how maybe jealousy would bubble up Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but according to buddy he respected melanie's decision and he let her go without any trouble according to jack his friends and melanie Buddy got super weird and dark. Oh no. Jack told his friends that Buddy was harassing Melanie constantly. So it would range from benign, apologetic telegrams, like mm-hmm. one that read sorry for the past week and for the abuse i must have put you through for the past five years you always hurt the one you love jack is a good guy and will love you and be honest with you you're right i would always be a bum like these kind of Hmm. pleading yeah kind of guilt
1: trippy sort of
0: and i'm sorry and you're you know you're right you're right
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and then you know he would also make Constant phone calls to both Jack and Melanie, demanding that his wife be returned to him. Mm. There was a little bit of like, yeah, you know. Sometimes he's really intense. Sometimes he's really nice. He's playing the field a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Buddy even offered Jack a hundred thousand dollars to dump Melanie and move out, promising to help him buy a bar. He was like, "I'll introduce you to models. I'll buy you a bar. Just mm-hmm. dump her. Return my wife." Yeah,
1: right? this guy just sounds like a definitely a controlling maniac.
0: Yeah. But he would also watch the couple lurking by windows and on balconies.
1: Hey everyone, no real graceful way to sort of jam job this in here, but I'm sure you guys have been hearing... Uh, sirens in the background for the last <laughs> I don't know how long, but eventually Mira and I were like, should we stop? This Is it messing up our recording? And that was our first thought. And our second thought was like, what's going on? So we just looked outside and there was just smoke billowing down our block.
0: Yeah, so we had to go on an adventure. We're back. Yeah. We're going to get back into this story. Maybe, that, maybe we'll sound a little out of breath.
1: There was a, a fire. <laughs> Speaking of the Bronx, <laughs> here we are in Los Angeles, a fire a couple blocks away.
0: And we, it looks like everybody's fine. I don't know what's going on. Well,
1: we, we went out of our building and it was just other people like us around our age, whatever our demographic of human in clothes like we're wearing, which are basically pajamas pajamas, walking down. And then we live on a hip, There's like it's like a hip block down there, hip street. We go down there, it's just like a bunch of Gen Z, like fashionistas who just can't be bothered.
0: Beautiful fashionistas and outfits like like really (laughs) strutting. Yeah, who just
1: did not give a damn about the fire. It's like literally smoky everyone else is like covering their face with their shirts.
0: Well and we are like I mean, there's just this contingent of people just squinting in the sun and like kind of walking slowly in their pajamas towards the sun, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Toddling our way out of our own. Like
1: on their cell phones, <laughs> calling whichever spouse or family members back at the house who like didn't want to go. Yeah, they like, it no, it funny. looks like the Goodwill's on fire. I can't tell.
0: She's like, oh uh, my God, I'm in my pajamas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Muriel. Back to the story. Okay. So, Buddy has been creeping on them, looking in their windows, spying He's on a- them in the bathroom. Balcony.
0: Right, so okay. he's always lurking. So they, you know, if they leave the building, he's watching them. If they come in, he's watching them. He's always mm-hmm. lurking around watching them, right? Yeah.
1: Do you taste smoke in your mouth? Yes, but yeah. let's go under the door. Okay. Uh, yeah, I need some water, man. All right, okay.
0: <laughs> really gross. Uh, so anyway, he's lurking on these balconies, and he's doing it as often as possible during Melanie and Jack's three-week affair. Mm-hmm. On Friday, August 4th, about like two weeks after they started dating, (laughs) Jack and Melanie Mm -hmm. had a nice dinner with some of Jack's friends and the topic of marriage came up. Later, Jack's family claimed like a proposal never happened and that Jack was just trying to rescue Melanie. Melanie said Jack did talk about proposing that night. Mm -hmm. And she only considered it to get away from Buddy. So there's two very different stories here. His family's like, she would never propose. And Mm -hmm. he's like, yes, he did.
1: Okay, all right.
0: On Saturday, August 5th, Jack and Melanie took a day trip out to Long Island. And when they got back to Jack's penthouse that night, they stayed in for dinner because Melanie wasn't feeling well. So they're just hanging out at the house. Mm -hmm. That night... They were kept up. They heard hammering on the roof all night long mm-hmm. and didn't know what it was about.
1: I feel like that's pretty ominous. It is. The okay. smoke is
0: giving me allergies, so <laughs> you're just going to have to deal with that. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm going off. Okay. All right. Yeah. So on the morning of Sunday, August 6th, Melanie had decided she'd had enough, right? She spent the night listening to this weird banging on the roof. Buddy's just like too much, right? Mm-hmm. And she wants to... Get away from living across the hall from Buddy's weirdness.
1: It's probably a good idea.
0: Probably a good idea, Super solid. She's growing up. She's 23. Yeah. So in kind of a power move, she left Jack Tupper in bed and she went out and signed a lease on an apartment about 30 blocks away on 52nd Avenue.
1: Is her ability to make money as a model still tied up with the My Fair Lady agency at this point?
0: It is, but her bookings are still coming in. Uh So she had like a big Clairol spread for like that Uh cosmetics brand. She's still doing very well for herself, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is. And that'll come out a lot during trial when we talk about that later. Okay, But they didn't even have like a formal written agreement. Mm. And Buddy owned the building that my fair lady was in. Mm -hmm. And so all of their stuff is like tied up in this sort of cesspool of nothingness. Okay. So she goes out, she signs this lease on her own, independent woman. She's got her own money. And, you know, she would later say she fully intended on moving Jack in with her, mm-hmm. you know. But, I mean, I think it's kind of crazy. 23 years old, like, without even your partner there, just being like, I'm getting an apartment today. I don't
1: know. I was thinking <laughs> about this. I think we're being too hard on young people. We were, We moved in together at that age. I mean, I know we talked about it, but...
0: Yeah, after six months and I'd known you for like seven years.
1: Yeah, I mean she's she's a <laughs> she's a independent woman who's killing it in her chosen career. I don't know. I'm changing my whole tune about this gal. I think I think we were hard on eighteen year olds to begin with. I mean, you know, hooking up with guys in their forties. You know, that's, I'm not
0: being hard on her. I'm just like everybody is a little dumb. That's how I think.
1: <laughs> All right. I'm
0: not being hard on her because she's young. I think she's great. Yeah. And we've talked about how she's great. Yeah. I don't agree with what you're talking about. Okay. I'm. I mean, we've been shitting on <laughs> forty-eight year old, uh, you know, murder pants. Yeah. Right. This time, you know. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Yes. You know. Yeah. But I do think it's, I, at 23, yeah. if I were like lying in bed and I thought tonight, today I'm going to sign a lease and I didn't even talk to anybody about yeah. it and I just went and signed it, it's a pretty strong, solid power move. Okay. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see. Ya.
0: Okay. Well, don't, I don't know, man. This fire's <laughs> getting you all wild
1: up. <laughs> no, this fire really tore us apart here. <laughs> okay. It's your birthday and we love each other.
0: Melanie then returns to Jack's penthouse to tell him the good news. Mm-hmm and instead of being in bed, Jack's gone. But all of his stuff was still there, like his shoes, and he has a little address book that he always kept on him. Mm -hmm. Nothing too crazy, but enough to give her some bad vibes. Yeah. So what she claims is she made a phone call to My Fair Lady, just to see, you know, when he was in the office from Jack's apartment, and Buddy answered, and he had this choked up, odd voice, Mm -hmm. and she just hangs up the phone. She then goes across the hall to Buddy's place and she sees all these shadows moving under the door, right? Mm-hmm. So she starts to ring the buzzer, but no one will come and answer the door. Mm. And she decides, you know, she's gonna go out, she's gonna go outside <laughs> and mm-hmm. use a payphone. She's mm-hmm. getting a weird feeling. Yeah. And as she's leaving, she also notices that white paint had been smeared all over the red carpet in their shared hall. So there's just white paint out there weird so like i said mel uh-huh. what did you have a question well i
1: just feel like they did it to cover up blood
0: so melanie has this gnarly feeling uh-huh. and she decides i gotta go outside and make these phone calls i don't really feel that safe here right and it's blazing hot outside it's august mm-hmm. in new york and as she walks out to make the phone call trying to find some of jack's friends she sees jack Tupper's red sedan still parked outside of the building Mm -hmm. so after trying and failing to reach someone she knew from Jack's address book Melanie went back into buddy's building she pushed the call button for the elevator but it wouldn't come down so Melanie walks up the seven flights of stairs you know she's not sure what's going on but she's Mm -hmm. going up to the doorway on the seventh floor and she gets up to the top and the doorway is blockaded and there's paper taped over all the windows so (sighs) she walks back downstairs and out to the payphone again to see if Jack had left her a message on her answering service Mm -hmm. you know so she calls her answering service she doesn't have any messages and then she doesn't know what to do so she goes down to All Ireland the bar that Jack had recently sold Mm -hmm. and just to see if he was there he wasn't there So she goes back to Buddy's building. She calls the elevator again. And this time, it comes down normally. So she gets in. She goes to the seventh floor. And now this paint-smeared rug is just gone. Mm -hmm. And the door to Buddy's apartment is open. Buddy's back in the apartment. And the apartment is now filled with these Italian workers from Buddy's construction project in East Harlem. Yeah. From the doorway, she can see Buddy's apartment was totally trashed. There's broken glass, mirrors, overturned furniture, like all kinds of crazy chaos. Uh And when Buddy looked up and saw her, he just screams, get out, I don't want to see you. And then he bangs the door shut in her face. So Melanie goes back outside to the payphone with Jack's address book and finally gets a hold of a man she knew, one of Jack's friends named Shaw. And Shaw agrees to come by. So she decides to go back into the building mm-hmm. and just wait in the lobby. And as she walks into the building, she's surprised to see Buddy is now in the lobby as well. But now he's cool as a cucumber. Mm-hmm. Not angry, not upset, just hanging out. Mm-hmm. And they talk really briefly and he says, you know, no, I haven't seen Jack all day. You know, he acknowledges, it. I haven't seen Jack at all. When Shaw got to the building... The two go upstairs and they check over all of Jack's apartment and the hallway. And in that process, they spot a little drop of blood and a tuft of hair. And it looked like someone had just cleaned the floor where the rug had been. There was Uh some recent cleaning in this one spot. Mm -hmm. So they don't know what to do. They decide to just go outside and wait in the awning of a restaurant next to the building and just see if Jack shows up. Yeah. So they wait for a few more hours, and then eventually, standing out in the summer rain and the super muggy heat, they call the police around 8 p.m. But by this time, Buddy Jacobson and his employee, Salvatore Prinito, had already been caught sitting in traffic on the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge.
1: Oh, man.
0: Firefighters had already discovered the burned remains of 34-year-old Jack Tupper inside a wooden crate on a pile of garbage in the Bronx. The wooden crate Melanie believes Buddy had built on the roof the night before. Mm. When Jack and Melanie were trying to sleep through the hammering sounds.
1: God, that is a freaky, freaky idea. Just hearing your coffin being built above you the night before. I think
0: that's literally the quote that she's that is the quote she was like i literally heard him building the coffin Ugh. jack had been shot seven times he'd been stabbed his face had been completely sliced up with a knife no his head was beaten no. in. No. so an officer at the scene claimed that the things that were done to jack were enough to kill him 10 times over it was just a crazy example of overkill sure jack tupper's body was so badly burned Melanie could only recognize her boyfriend of three weeks by his gold Sagittarius necklace. Mm -hmm. She couldn't even recognize
1: him. That is so tragic.
0: By Monday night, the day after police had interrogated buddy for 24 hours straight. Mm -hmm. And they ended the interrogation by charging him with Jack Tupper's murder. Yeah. The next day, A group of FBI agents discreetly and somewhat suspiciously cleared out Jack Tupper's entire apartment. Huh. Okay. Next week, Uh we'll talk about FBI conspiracies, a mysterious drug dealer, Buddy's absolutely ridiculous escape from jail, and $45 million worth of hash heesh.
1: Did you just try to say hashish? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to end this episode where we started it, baby. Uh, okay, this is good. This is good. All right. Well, if you want immediate access to part two, sign up for our Patreon. Links in show notes. Otherwise, we'll put out part two uh, next Wednesday. Are you
0: curious to know what happens? Yeah, I'm hella curious to know because
1: dude's <laughs> brother's in the FBI. Yeah. So are they trying to... Is he trying to cover up a crime that his brother committed?
0: We're going to talk about it, but yeah. I think what I can tease you with is that no one knows for sure, but there is definitely enough like stuff that happened that could point to a whole nother like narcotics thing. <laughs> oh, the, that the ha <laughs>
1: what you call it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't be a you're such a jerk. You can't read out loud at all. That's like your favorite part about you recapping episodes.
1: I know, I know, I know.
0: Don't even try.
1: Well, we're gonna take a little break, let the smoke clear out of our apartment, and have a little silk birthday celebration.
0: That's right. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe.
1: For listening to Muriel's Murders, Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing, recording, engineering, and post production. And this podcast was recorded in our living
0: room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com Muriel's Murders. We
1: also draw and animate little bonus content for Muriel's Murders, which populates our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open and you can email us at Murders at gmail.com. And if you think NFTs are just the coolest thing in the world, find them uh, to support the podcast at voice.com slash salty gray. And
0: shout out to all the partners of people who are into making NFTs. <laughs> I see you and I hear you.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, guys are going to start a little support group. Uh-huh. Okay. Please
0: rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It actually really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, guess what, guys? You can rate us there. As well as add an episode to the playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune into.
1: Mm, our music is by Mario Casolini. Find him on Instagram at Casolini Beats.
0: And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our non murder podcast, Hella in Your 30s, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That's it for now, guys. We love you. Goodbye. Scooby, Scooby, we're
0: just talk about- Comics like comic
1: books do you like brothers do you
0: like brothers talking about comic
1: books then this is the podcast for you screw it we're just going to talk about comics
0: will hines and kevin hines performers from the upright citizen brigade theater and actual brothers talk about actual comic books they love like spider-man the fantastic four and many more
1: if you prefer your podcast to be about fictional people talking about fictional books this isn't it but otherwise screw it we're just going to talk about comics from
0: campfire media Campfire.